Welcome to The Other Coast, a podcast dedicated to the Malibu meta in Los Angeles. My name is Jeff, and with me are two other players from the SoCal meta, Jim and Colgan. Hey guys, what's up? How's everyone doing? Great. So, today's episode is the Malifaux Bootcamp, where we're going to take a deeper look at some of the basic concepts in the game. This episode is primarily intended for newer players, but it may be of general interest to any Malifaux fan. And, you know, we would just like to emphasize that uh, the three of us, we are fans of the game, we play the game, but we're not trying to, you know, speak from the podium, right? This is just our thoughts on what works for us. Yeah, we're more speaking from the wooden spoon end of things. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, sometimes it's just nice to win something. I think the first topic that we had kind of uh, discussed we wanted to go over were the resources. Malifaux has a lot of different resources, and some of them are derivative resources or maybe sub-resources. But we had to find a way to kind of frame our discussion, and we hit on five major resources that we wanted to discuss. And those were models, actions cards, soul stones, and past tokens. So, Colgan, lead us off. And this might be kind of an obvious an obvious one, but, you know, we'll start with the softball. Uh, what is a model as a resource? Yeah, so the models are basically going to be the guys that you hire into your crew. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess as we mentioned earlier in Malifaux, the unique thing is that you're hiring your models in after you see the schemes and strats. Mm-hmm. So this is when you're going to be looking at your master. If you're a newer player, you probably only have one master. You're going to be looking at your keyword, maybe what models you have, and try and pick out which ones you think will match the strat or the scheme. So if you're like in a killier strat like public enemies, um, you would be looking to take maybe slightly tougher guys or at least maybe a few more beaters than normal mm-hmm. um, just to make sure you kind of have the killing power you need to secure those strategy points. Right, right. And then, you know, on the flip side too, the... The models, you know, they, they, they're a resource to you and they're also potentially a resource to your opponent, right? For instance, in Public Enemies, uh, your, your opponent scores those bounty points depending on their cost. So the enemy is going to probably look to preferentially target the highest amount of points he can score in the most efficient manner. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is a game about plastic soldiers. They're how you interact with the game at all. So yeah, they're they're your resource. They're like the pieces on your chessboard. They are the pieces on your chessboard. And sometimes you do need to be able to use a model in a way that will leave it exposed or could result in its destruction and being removed from the table if that scores you victory points. Because at the end of the day, you win by having victory points, not by having models left on the board. Right, right. So models are, you know, the basic means by which uh, you and your opponent are going to achieve or attempt to deny goals. And models, you know, they're going to take their actions and they're going to move around the board using their their action points. Well, they're not called action points in in 3rd edition, but essentially, you know, they're action points, right? So, uh, Jim, how do you tend to think about a model's actions? When you get down to the math of it, because Malifaux is still a game, and you can math it out. Every model gets two actions per activation. Masters get leaders get three. Excuse me. Masters get three all the time. Henchmen, if they're your leader, gain a third one. And every model can take a bonus action if it has a relevant bonus action on its activation. There's only five turns in a game, so if you do two actions per activation and five activations, assuming you don't die, 
every model starts the game with a pool of 10 activations or 10 actions you can take between the start and the end of the game. That's all you get. So really, if your average crew size is what, 7 to 9 models, you only have, we'll ballpark it, 80 actions that you get to take over the course of a 5 turn game. And that's, just, again, if your opponent takes one action that kills a model, they're denying you uh, 5-8 actions towards scoring your victory points. And when you look at the game that way, certain abilities on cards and certain bonus actions and certain triggers become a lot more desirable. Take Flurry, for example. That's a common ability on the front of cards. After resolving an attack action with the claw symbol for melee, you can discard a card and take, a, take that action again. This lets you get a free, air quotes, action, and if it's on a model that has a melee attack, it's probably a good melee attack. So now you can do what you want to do better, or you can do more of what you want to do with that model. So if I'm taking a model and has flurry, I'm going to look at applying it in a situation where I can use that to generate more actions. Right, right. I'm really pretty disappointed to hear you say that Malifaux can be mapped out. You know, I was that kid in <laughs> math class saying, I'll never have to use this. And yes, well. Turns out math is still with me despite mm-hmm. my best efforts. It's okay. Uh, so <laughs> we don't have to tell you the, the airspeed velocity of a coconut-laden swallow, but what we can say is that your actions on your models are what you are using and spending to either score points or deny your opponent's points. And Colgan, a lot of these actions require the use of another resource that we have, cards. What do you think about cards and card management? Um, Yeah, so this is something I see a lot of newer players struggle with, is really understanding, I guess, when you should be cheating in cards from your control hand, and I guess how to think about your statistics and use of cards in general. So one thing I see is a lot of players, they want to think that having a handful of severes is kind of like the ideal hand going into any kind of turn. Mm Mm-hmm. And for me, it really depends. Most crews you have are going to have some simple duels like tactical actions that only need like a five or a six to go off. Mm-hmm. And the thing you need to remember is every card in your hand is a card you don't have in your deck. So if you have a handful of severes, but you need a tactical action to um, force someone to drop a scheme marker or get a leap off, for example, you don't want to be cheating in like a 12 or a 13 in order to pass that test because that means later on down the line you're going to be flipping like a low four or five when you actually need to hit or do some damage to a model right right you know so in terms of your control hand uh one thing that i sort of struggle with is uh, if i get the black joker in it how long should i hold on to it you know so do you guys kind of have a, a rule of thumb of what you do with the black joker you know do you drop it as soon as you can to you know to get to be able to redraw that card slot or will you sit on it to guarantee it doesn't appear in the rest of the game for me, I will hold on to it as long as possible. Best case scenario, I can hold on to it until the end of turn four and then just drop it at the top of turn five mm-hmm. just to know I'm never going to flip that thing. Because there's nothing worse than having like a bonus action where you just need to, you know, pass like a simple duel and you flip the black joker and then all of a sudden it doesn't work. Like playing Hamlin and his unclean influence trigger, which is gives you so much action efficiency. 
Um, and it's a, like a four in order to get off. So like most of the time you're going to be able to ensure that you get that action off, but you flip a black choker and it's just gone. And because it's a bonus action, you've just lost that action for the entire turn. Right. Similarly, I like to hold on to it, but I don't like to hold on to it that hard. It, it kind of comes down to, am I playing a summoner? Because if I'm playing a summoner or any model has a once per activation ability that's really central to how it plays... Summoners are the most mm-hmm. obvious ones for that, but for example, if I'm in Bayou and I'm running Big Brain Bryn, uh, who's going to artificially mm-hmm. reduce the size of my deck with his Calculate the Possibilities, I would probably hold it longer. But if I don't, I'll hold it until like turn three, and then I'll discard it. Mm-hmm. Because in my experience, you flip the most cards on turns two and three. Because that's when your crews kind of collide and any combat that's going to happen happens. Turn one, you have a lot of setup, a lot of jockeying for position. By turn four, most of the things that are going to die are dead. And turn five is, again, jockeying for those final points. Right. Holding on to it, because I do feel that having cards in my fate hand that I can use for those simple duels are very useful. To speak to that real quickly, you know, Malifaux does this really neat thing where they break the cards in, in the Fate deck into three categories of weak, moderate, and severe. And it's that those blocks of five, right? You have the ones to five are your weaks, six to tens are your moderates, and elevens or face cards are severe. You know, there's a we talked about Flurry earlier. There's a lot of abilities in the game that require discarding a card. If I'm playing a crew that has discard effects, I love seeing weak cards in my hand. Because I, I know I can discard those and not feel guilt. If I have, you know, if I have right. a, a beater that has flurry, and like I have my Mancha Roja, and he charges into somebody, and I have a 12 and a 13 in my hand, and I need that flurry to go off, I'm feeling real bad. Yeah, no, I mean, I can totally see that. Uh, and so, you know, the control hand obviously sounds like an important resource. It's a, you know, it starts with with six for for most people sometimes seven if you have arcane reservoir but you know specifically when when talking about control hand size there are some abilities that you you know some people can purchase right either you buy a model with arcane reservoir or you buy if you're an arcanist you buy the upgrade how important is that seventh card i mean is is that a reason specifically to bring something in or do you see it more as an extra i mean i'm gonna say that more often than not i'll take the thing that has arcane reservoir I think paying two stones for Arcane Reservoir on an upgrade in Arcanists is... I would do it every time. And when it comes to Bayou, one of my other main factions, I'll take Bryn if I'm doing an act... If I'm playing a crew that has a lot of simple duels, like Somer, because I want to have that extra card in hand. And I'm also taking Bryn for other reasons in Bayou, because he has a lot on his card. Right. Hannah in Outcast is another excellent choice for her cost because she brings Arcane Reservoir and the ability to copy actions. I can't quite think of, off the top of my head, a model with Arcane Reservoir that doesn't have something else really good going for it, unless it's a totem, mm-hmm. in which case you're probably getting it for free anyway. Right, right. But, I mean, you mentioned you know the Arcanist upgrade, uh, Magical Training, that provides arcane reservoir if you put it on a minion and that increases your control hand by one 
Uh, would you also pay two stones as a Neverborn player? Because I know you, you know you do play Zoraida, uh, I primarily by you, but I you know imagine you might play them in Neverborn sometime. Um, would you consider Ancient Pact, which lets you draw a card after this minion ends? Uh, so it doesn't increase your control hand, but it does draw a card. You know, are are those the same to you? Are 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 they different? Uh, and and if they are different, is that difference distinct? Like, is that different significant enough to where it influences whether or not you would take it? That is a good question. I think, I think with Zareda, it's a bit of a hard, hard statement. I think for other masters, like I've dabbled in Euripides, and for him, I would mm-hmm. I would take two, uh, ancient packs, uh, because he has a lot of simple duels, and recouping those cards helps with those simple duel pressure. Zareda has two hands mm-hmm. of cards a turn because of her Threads of Fate, so she doesn't really right. need one card on a minion so what about you colgan so for me i definitely value arcane reservoir over ancient pact um one of the reasons for me is that ancient pact kind of can dictate your activation order to a certain degree so if you're like low on cards and you're like oh i need to activate this guy to draw that card but you might have another action that has higher priority Whereas Arcane Reservoir, just at the top of the turn, you get an extra card. You're able to more accurately predict and plan out your turn. Mm-hmm. Um, so having the card draw is definitely nice, but I like having that information up front when I begin my turn. So I have a stronger idea of what I can do and what I can accomplish. Yeah, so if Arcane Reservoir is so important, if I'm your opponent and I have Arcane Reservoir because I've listened to this episode and I know Arcane Reservoir is good, uh, so I, I buy it and I just, you know, I buy magical training. I stick it with my minions. Is that minion now going to die? Does he have a big old target on his head? Uh, depends. Uh, not to be all wishy-washy about it, but in the situation for Arcanist, which minion are you putting it on? If it's the never on the board Soulstone Miner, not much I can really do about that unless I'm playing uh, the, jur- the jury from Guild or I'm playing Terra. If it's, you know, a mole man for Marcus, yeah, I'm going to go for him. But I'm probably not going to go for him at the expense of scoring my victory points. Well, if your opponent has brought the mole man, the odds of you scoring all your victory points is probably pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Poor mole man. I mean, I say that I'm going to get stomped by mole men next next game. But uh, I mean, I think they're a strong candidate for the, the worst model in the game. That's that's fair, and their sculpts aren't helping them very much either. Right, <laughs> those teeth. Uh, yeah. So I mean, cards are are obviously you know very important as a as a resource. They you know, you can spend them right to do certain certain actions. They can also you can use them to cheat right to change the results, and you can uh, cheat to succeed, or or you know even sometimes cheating while you're failing can be useful to change the the radius the range of of uh you know the accuracy tracker or something like that so you know if you're looking to cheat i assume you don't just cheat out the first the first duels that you fail you know to to avoid never failing a duel right oh no (laughs) no i you know when you start your turn i i am of the firm belief that you're going to have actions that you either expect to go off or really want to go off and those Mm -hmm. will be like your simple duels or your actions that don't require a flip at all Mm -hmm. if it's a card that you need to flip and it's a simple duel like a good example is a summoner Mm -hmm. summoners all have the ability to shocker summon 
and those are almost always simple duels that require a specific suit. And if you have the ability to spend a soul stone with that model, a good use of a soul stone or a high card of that suit is to ensure that action goes off. Right. You're doing an action. Ask yourself, if I, f- if I fail this action, is that going to prevent me from scoring points? If the answer is yes, then I would cheat to succeed the action or do something else to help ensure that action goes off, like taking the concentrate for a focus mm-hmm. on an attack. Counterwise, if my opponent attacks my dude, my little Bayou Gremlin, and my Bayou Gremlin, you know, is hit, and I theoretically could cheat to avoid the the hit, I have to think, what else can that card do for me? Right. You know, sometimes it's okay to let your models die, just like it's okay in chess to let your opponent take your pawns, if in return you can take their right, bishop. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and one one thing I think I see a lot of newer players do is, you know, they get a they get a straight flip on on damage. Uh, and they, you know, they immediately cheat in the severe uh, for the big hit, right? Uh, whether or not it's necessarily all that important to apply that much damage or if they might need that card for an action later. Uh, but so Colgan, you know, at the start of the turn, you draw your control hand. Uh, you see you see the six or, or seven cards in your hand. You know, at, at that point, have you assigned a specific use for every card in your hand? Or, you know, like to what extent... Does, does your control hand kind of guide what you want to accomplish during the turn? Um, yeah, for me, it definitely has a big impact on what I'm going to attempt to do during my turn. So usually going into a turn, I have more or less of an idea of what I want to accomplish in order to either secure you know, some victory points or kind of deny or remove some of my opponent's models from the board. Mm-hmm. So looking at your control hand, I feel like dictates that. Um, so having, you know, of course, having severes in your hand is always great. But if I pull a bad hand and it's like my highest cards is seven or eight, I'm not going to be looking to try and remove their models from the board. Because to me, um, the strength from the control hand comes from the ability to kind of predict the relative success chance of any actions you take. Mm-hmm. So if I don't have a way to ensure I'm going to get a hit in, unless their model's already really low, or um, I know that I can afford to spend a lot of actions to try and remove that model from the board, I'm going to try and avoid engaging with them or forcing those fights when I feel like I'm at a disadvantage. Right. Like, how often, you know, do you feel your expectations match reality? You know, when you, like, you look at your hand and you're like, okay, uh, I, feel, I feel confident that I'm going to be able to, you know, sort of ram through... Uh, like this sequence or you know these particular actions um do you generally find that uh that's borne out or is it kind of more haphazard um i feel like it's pretty borne out so this is where you know stat numbers and defensive numbers and kind of you know just double checking with your opponent what their scores are becomes really important because if i know i have a six and they have like a five i know that if i have 12 in my hand i can pretty much ensure a hit unless they have a red joker mm-hmm. And, you know, if they have a red joker, it's kind of like, I, I don't feel, there's like a one in 54 chance. So I don't feel like that's something I'm necessarily planning for. Mm-hmm. That's a really, really important point you just made, Colgan. You know, um, in this game, this is, you know, I don't know the specific averages, but the rule of thumb has always been, at least to my understanding, average stat is a five. Five is the average human. Six is above average. Mm-hmm. And this really bears out when you look at how 
the accuracy modifier is calculated and how the whole target number and opposed dual system works. Because like you pointed out, if you have two people and they're flipping cards and they have the same stat, like a five attack against a five defense, it's straight up down to what you flip. If I flip a 10 and you flip a five, you now have to flip a 11 to beat me. Right, because the attacker wins a tie. That's also, that's jumping your category from a weak card to a severe card. So it takes you an entire two jumps of category in that instance to beat me. And for me, when I look at a model and try to figure out what that model is supposed to do, I look for the sixes. I look for the stats above five, and that tells me what that model wants to do. Right. So yeah, when when you have a higher stat and you're you're flipping in an advantage, you're you're shrinking the range of cards that your opponent can flip or cheat to succeed in a duel, right? And since the attacker uh, wins ties, that increases the, you know, even between models of even stat, the attacker will have an advantage. And in fact, you know, one one use of sort of the the moderate range cards, you, you know, your your 6 to 10s um, that, that I found effective is when I have the advantage in a duel, you know, the stat advantage, but I am currently losing the duel, uh, I will frequently decide to cheat in, you know, sort of a mid-range card, especially, you know, like a 7 or an 8. I will cheat in that card because I understand that with my stat advantage and as the attacker, since I'm winning, they need to beat me, not just tie. You know, all of a sudden, they either need to allow the duel to succeed... Uh, or they need to cheat in a much better card than I've used. Uh, and, and so, you know, if I get rid of a, a 7 and they have to get rid of a 10, I mean, I count that as a, a win in my book. That's fair. There are triggers that are all about forcing your opponent to discard a card, and in that sense, you've kind of, quote, cheated for a non-built-in trigger to make them discard a card and take no damage? That's a catchy quote. We're going to see it on dust covers. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking to that... That's another thing that I feel like a lot of people, you kind of get tunnel vision when you're playing the game. You don't think about overall card efficiency or actually what your opponent's thinking. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a lot of times where um, when I'm playing against a player, I'll be throwing out an attack, not necessarily because I really want to kill that model, but you know, it happens to be like, I guess the most efficient use of that action rather than like moving somewhere else. Or, you know, just trying to remove some activations from them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'll hit in with, like, it'll be, like, a really low stat. Like, maybe I'll flip, like, a 4, and they'll flip, like, a 3. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, I don't want to get hit. So they'll cheat in a 13. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, this is great for me, because I didn't really care about this duel in the first place. And, and there's a lot of situations, like, defensively, too. Like, for me, my favorite thing to do defensively is if it's kind of a low duel and I can beat them by just, like, one with the card in my hand, it's like, okay, I can cheat in a six and I can beat their attack by one. And then them having to cheat in, like, a much higher card or I get a sense of what cards they actually have in their control hand. So if I cheat in, like, a six and they're like, I want this to go off and they cheat in a 12, well, I know that in the future when I'm taking duels later this turn, they're much less likely to be able to cheat and hire. So I can start going in with lower cards or have a better idea of what my success will be based on which cards I have in my hand. Right, right. Now, Jim and Colgan, uh, you know, it sounds like these high cards, um, you know, they're, they're really at a premium to ensure that you 
uh, are going to be able to succeed in the things you want to do. But of course, they do have other uses too, right? I mean, you can use them defensively, uh, and you can also use them to cheat in damage. So when would the two of you look to uh, use your high cards for cheating, you know, defensively and then for damage? Well, I mean, for me, this is a common refrain. If my opponent is going to spend the resources to attack my guy, hits my guy, how many resources are they spending? And is it going to cost me victory points? Like, I'm playing Bayou, you're attacking my good old boy, and if you kill my good old boy, then I'm not going to be able to score my scheme, or you're going to get your public enemy's bounty points. In that case, sure, I'll cheat to deny, or buy you two cards to deny, but that's kind of cheating. At the same time, if you did a focused attack, and I can cheat to avoid it, now I've denied you two actions worth of abilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because you spent an action to focus, and you spent the action to attack. Right. If I have a model that can heal, or a model that has Demise Eternal, or Hard to Kill, or any of those defensive things where I can heal up after you hit, I might be inclined to let you take the hit as long as I will survive, and then I'll just immediately undo your action. Mm -hmm. What about you, Koyami? Do you see it kind of in these resource terms that Jim does, or do you have uh, like maybe a slightly different criteria? Um, I, I do see it in the same way as kind of like how many resources am I expending to save this model versus how many um, resources they're spending. Mm-hmm. Um, so there will be times where it's like I could cheat in to, I guess, dodge this attack or save this model. But overall, within what I'm trying to accomplish, it actually isn't worth it to me or it's not worth the resources I'd have to dedicate. So maybe say over here, I want to make sure I can get in these duels or ensure this hit on one side of the board i might just concede another part where i already feel like i'm weak or i've lost Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right as far as you mentioning like cheating whether to hit or to do damage i found recently for me i very rarely cheat on damage so i'll only cheat on damage if i know that securing like a severe will kill it on that action Mm -hmm. or if i can like sneak it down low enough to kind of sneak past the hard to kill wall Mm. um because in general like i'll I'll definitely cheat in like low moderates to go from a weak to a moderate if i'm able to Mm -hmm. but cheating in a severe for a lot of damage tracks and that that'll also be a factor the damage track of the model it doesn't necessarily feel worth it to me it's like okay i've already gotten the hit i'm doing a week of say three damage do I really want to cheat in like an 11 or 12, which could ensure me a hit on another attack Mm -hmm. just to add two additional damage? Because like most of all, I feel like it's not worth the trade. It's like, okay, I'm going to trade in a surefire hit on your model in order to do like one less damage overall. Right. And Jib, do you agree? I really like to do the math on the attacks because math is fun, kids. (laughs) Um, you have spiky damage tracks and you have flatter damage tracks. So take two beaters in, um, uh, for example, one beater would have a stereotypical beater damage track of three, four, five, like uh, Cornelius Bass. And then let's take another model from another faction, Sadir Alchabal from 10 Thunders. He has a gun with a two, three blast, six blast. If I'm playing Bass... I would rather get two hits, because two hits at min three is better than one hit at min at severe five, like you just pointed out, Colgan. If I'm severe, I'll take a focus action and take a focused shot on something, 
because two attacks at minimum two is less than one attack at a straight flip most of the time for a six. Because the way the math works out, when you attack someone, unless you have a six or better difference in your stat, which means you your opponent flipped a weak, you flipped a severe more often than not, you're going to be on a negative twist from the accuracy modifier to damage. And that means you're really not getting outside of moderate damage most of the time. Mm-hmm. Because a third of the deck is weak. Excuse me. There are 20 cards. 5, 10, yeah. 20 weak cards in the deck. 20 moderate no, cards 21. in the deck. Uh, the Black Joker is special. Because ah, Black Joker does zero damage. Right, right. It is, by the rules, though, a weak card, I believe. Ah, fair. You got me there. So there are 21 weak cards. There's 20 moderate cards. So... You have 41 out of 54 cards that are going to keep you in that weak to moderate damage track on an on a negative twist to damage. Mm-hmm. And with the presence of things like hard to wound, concealment, cover, it's very easy to look at attacks and reliably say you're going to get that weak damage. Focus gives you a positive on the attack flip and the damage flip of your action. And unless your opponent's behind cover or you have an ability to ignore cover, then that focus allows you to get that straight flip on the damage. And so then if you have that spiky damage track, then I, w- then I would cheat the damage flip. Yeah, so in the short answer to your question, what does more damage? More hits or taking a focus shot? And that's going to be dependent on your damage track. Right, so I mean, in a way, cheating in a high damage card kind of uh, justifies or validates the, the focus, right? Because... Focusing gave you uh, this this potential to to move the damage uh, from a from a negative flip to a straight flip, and that capability is what allows you to cheat in the severe. So you kind of get extra value from the focus, or at least you maximize the value from the focus. Yeah, one thing I just want to tag onto is something I see a lot: the having a plus flip on your first duel. I think is actually super strong for reasons people don't necessarily think about it's like sure it gives you a better chance but for me it's like i get a chance to just burn weak cards out of my deck mm-hmm. like if you get like a one and like an eight for example and you're still able to hit you're never going to flip that one on any duel like it's just gone from your deck for the rest of the turn so the more plus flips you can get during a turn for the most part you're just increasing the overall quality of your deck because anytime you hit a weak card you're just kicking it out right and as you know, as Jim mentioned, most of the deck is weak or moderate, right? And what you'd really like to get to is is your severes. Uh, now, it would be great, of course, if um, value is all that mattered, but uh, suits are also a resource in the game, right? And uh, you know, oftentimes, especially for the summoning actions that you mentioned, you don't just need high cards; you need suited cards as well. Uh, so when you're looking at your control hand and you see the suits, um, and I, I feel like. Spoiler alert, I probably understand the answer to this question is it depends. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you're looking at, at your control hand um, and, and you're trying to evaluate your suit use, you know, how critical are those suited cards, especially the suited high cards to you? Well, I mean, for me, when I have my crew, I have certain actions on that in that crew that are priority actions or priority abilities. So if I have, say, a leaping model, and that model requires a mask for the leap, if I have a, a mask card that is of that value, I earmark that card for that leap. Mm-hmm. And I just say, I am not cheating this for anything other than that leap. If I have a summoner, 
and that summoner is expected to summon a card or summon a model, I bookmark that uh, in Bayou. You have Ma Tucket has an ability on her card, uh, Horrible Hollerin, which normally it just pushes a person, but it has a trigger that allows you to give focus to friendly models in a pulse. That is a, an action that I would store a card for turn one when I have everyone clustered around her to get yelled at. <laughs> Later turns, I might not earmark that specific card. Yeah, and I think this kind of builds off of um, what we were saying earlier. It's when you're a newer player starting out, I just recommend sticking with one list and getting your reps in. And part of that is like, as Jim was mentioning, so you know which actions are priority and which triggers you want to ensure. So with like henchmen's and masters, you have a lot more leeway with actions that you want to get certain triggers on because you're able to expend soul stones for those. So I feel like it's really for your minions and enforcers that you want to make sure that you're earmarking cards in your hand with those specific suits, because that's the only way you can ensure that you're going to get those effects. Right, right. Yeah, a good example for that are the enforcers. A lot of enforcers have neat, cool things that they do, but unlike uh, Masters and Henchmen, they cannot spend soul stones to get those suits. Mm -hmm. Like you said, example being Forgotten Marshal in the Forgotten keyword. Mm -hmm. He is your summoner, um, and he has an unsuited summon. He's a good one to bankroll a card. And if you're learning your crew, you're sticking to your keyword... Take a look at your cards like when you're looking through them. See what your triggers do. Triggers that seem really cool, doing things like Onslaught, take this attack action again, you know, is that built in? If it's an action with a built-in trigger, what are the triggers that aren't built in? What kind of variables does that action give you? Right. Because actions that have built-in triggers, you can always declare that one. But when would you maybe want to go for that other action? Or other trigger, excuse me. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I think that's that's a great point, and you know, I think this is why listeners uh, come to our podcast for the the next level advice of read your cards, <laughs> which <laughs> you know you would be surprised, but it it helps quite a bit. Um, I I say that as someone who has actually not really closely read cards, um, to my detriment. Uh, so you know. That sounds like a good segue into talking about soul stones, right? And soul stones are another resource in the game. Uh, when you hire your crew, leftover soul stones that you don't spend, you take into the game uh, to use, uh, you know, to, to reduce damage or uh, you know, before a flip, a master henchman can get a plus flip or they can um, get a suit or you can use it uh, when you draw your cards of your control hand, you can spend a stone to draw two more cards, although that doesn't increase your hand size. So you just, you're filtering your hand, you're, you're choosing uh, two cards to keep and then two cards to throw away. Um so this this cash, I guess first we start with um, Jim Colgan. Do you guys intentionally leave unspent stones, and if so, you know, like how many, and uh, why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you just buy more models? Oh, I absolutely. Uh, I like to have five stones to six stones as as an average for most of my crews. For summoners, I try and have a few more stones because summoners are going to make up the difference in models turn one with one stone mm -hmm. i think that stones are incredibly useful as a resource because they fundamentally break certain rules of the game you know we're talking about triggers and suits are required for triggers well a lot of the models that have 
very impactful triggers are going to be your masters and your henchmen. And what do you know, if I have a master who has a trigger that gives me a really powerful benefit and I'm stuck with, you know, oh, I, I need a 10 or higher for this action to go off. It, well, if it were normally, that's the 10 of masks, 11, 12, 13, that's four cards in your deck plus the red joker, five. Add in soul stones. Suddenly you're adding four, eight, 12 more cards into the viable pool of cards that can get that action to go off. So now you're looking at 17 out of 54 cards that you can use to successfully use that ability. So soul stones unlock certain actions on certain models for purposes of triggers. Um, I also think that taking soul stones for card filtering is a good tool for anyone. Uh, turns two through four. Right. Because that's when the most, most cards are being flipped and the most action is in an average game. So having the ability to have your hand be that much better on those turns is really nice. In my opinion. Right. What about you, Colgan? I mean, I assume your answer is going to be similar to Jim in that, yes, of course you take a cash. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to surprise us, uh, feel free. And if you do cash, take cash, you know, like how many are you looking to bring and, you know, why? Yeah, so shocker, I do agree with Jim on this. <laughs> um, I generally take a cash of between five to seven is what I'm comfortable with in most crews. Mm-hmm. Again, with the same thing, summoners, you want a little bit higher because you know you're going to be summoning in those models. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the strength from the soul stones is just in the flexibility of it. So during the course of the game, you can kind of switch like, oh, do you want to, you know, filter out bad cards from your hand at the start of the turn? Do you want to negate damage? Do you want to increase your offensive capabilities? Mm -hmm. And it gives you a lot of options. And the other thing that I think is usually, you know, when you're getting another model, you're getting a few more activations, but being able to prevent damage on your stronger models is a way of preserving activation so like okay sure maybe you can hire in another model and like your cash goes down to like two or three and you get you know those additional 10 actions but if the enemy's able to wipe out you know your high cost models at like the end of the second turn or at the top of the third turn and you don't have the soul stones to try and keep them on the table longer you're losing that advantage that you bought into at the beginning of the game and you're not necessarily able to recoup that cost. Right, right. No, that makes sense. Uh, so you both kind of mentioned five as your, like your starting point. Um, you know, when would you look to go less than that? And I mean, would you ever, you know, would you ever go zero and maybe rely on the various models or abilities that generate stones over the game to kind of make up not having a cash? I would go lower if I have models that make stones. Mm-hmm. So for Bayou, if I took Ma Tucket and I took two soul stone miners mm-hmm. i'd go to like two stones so she has enough stone that gives her enough stones to either card cycle or try and get that ram in hand to get that action that's a priority action turn one horrible hollering mm-hmm. and then she can recoup the rest over the course of the game with the soul stone miners i will also go low if the master i if the if the crew i'm using does not have a lot of mandatory triggers so a good crew that I can think of for this would be Wong, or the Whizbang crew. Mm-hmm. Wong himself, uh, he doesn't really have a lot of triggers that I am hell-bent on getting off. Because a lot of what he does is simple duels that impact his crew, or put out you know shockwaves, which shockwaves are okay, but they're not the best thing in the world. They have their place. Um, 
but because it's never it's something that inherently your opponent has control over the outcome i find wong i'm not really going to spend a soul stone on his fizzap if i know my opponent can just spend a six out of their hand and deny me that resource right right so for wong i'll go like three stones just to be sure that i can get the um the the moderate the moderate cards I need to pass his simple duels or pass the target number for his shockwave attack, but he's not stoning for a trigger. He's kind of durable, and if he dies, oh well, um, that's what he does. That's what Wong's <laughs> keyword does. They die. Maybe they score points. So Colgan, uh, you know how often um, does your enemy's crew kind of influence your soulstone selection? And you know I preface that by saying. Uh, you know, just uh, uh, yesterday I was talking to another player from our meta and he was telling us about a game where um, you were playing Hamlin uh, and he put, uh, you know, the, the Arcanist upgrade that lets you use soul stones uh, onto his ice golem uh, and he just smashed rats for soul stones all day. And, you know, maybe in that situation you might feel more comfortable running with less stones because you expect your enemy is going to, you know, has the conditions that will allow you to generate them. Um, yeah, in cases like that, I could see definitely going a bit lower if you're banking on being able to generate them throughout the game. I think in general, it doesn't affect my decision too much, because normally when I'm thinking about how many stones I have in my crew, I'm thinking about what actions I want to take and what I want to do Mm -hmm, throughout the course mm -hmm. of the game. If I'm able to generate more stones during the game, that's just kind of like, you know, an extra bonus for me. But it's not something I generally like to bank on. So I might go maybe a few stones shorter if I think I can generate a lot, but for the most part, the opponent's crew doesn't affect my decision-making. Got it. So, you know, one thing I've actually noticed as we talk about actions and cards and now soul stones is that uh, both, you know, Jim and Colgan, both of you look at these resources in terms of uh, what you can achieve, you know, and, and you don't uh, tend to look at them too much relative to... Uh, you know, denial of your opponent. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, you're not going to effectively use your control hand for denial. Um, but I guess my question is, when you're looking at these resources, you know, before the game and at the start of the game, uh, and even at the start of the turn, um, it sounds like uh, the primary consideration is what you feel you can achieve with what you have to work with. Is, would that be accurate? Uh, I would say so. I, I just want to take a point and say, the reason I focus on what I can achieve is because that's everything I can control. The minute I have to attack an opponent's model, my opponent gets a say in things, and I generally find it that my opponent is going to not be cooperative with me taking their model off the board. Um, they're probably not going to be very um, make it easy for me, uh, unless they can't make it difficult for me. But since I assume that they're going to do their best to stymie me, I'm going to find that it's best to plan for what I can control. And when it comes to denying points, if denying points comes from me leaping into a position to be in range and line of sight of a breakthrough runner, Mm -hmm. I can do that and my opponent can do very little to stop. If it's I need to kill his soulstone miner, well, now he can try and cheat a card to put me on a negative twist to damage right, and right. keep me on that negative or whatever. If It's why I find schemes like Vendetta very difficult because in order for me to score points, my opponent has to cooperate. Yeah, so I'm kind of in the same place. Uh, when I do think about what I can do, 
I'm generally starting with actions that I know will 100% succeed because the opponent isn't going to be involved in them. After that, I do think about denial, and that is kind of how I gauge out the use of my resources and the control hand. So maybe, for instance, I can jump in one of my tar pit models just to eat up activations by engaging some of their scheme runners and forcing them to disengage or have to dedicate resources or like reroute their beater units to try and push or kill that tar pit before they can actually take the actions they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, so it sounds, you know, it sounds like denial is maybe, I mean, everything in Malfo is situational, but it sounds like denial is, you know, really uh, more situational, I guess, for, for lack of a better word. Yeah, for me, it's normally like a secondary thing I'll be thinking about because obviously, you know, if you can deny points to your opponent, you want to be going for that. But I feel like in situations, it'll be a question of do I want to score a point or do I want to deny my opponent that point? Gotcha. And yeah, there there will be times in games where I will just completely concede and like, all right, you can score... I'll, I'll let you just score your scheme because I know what you're going, but I don't want to commit the resources there mm-hmm. while I'll just make sure I can secure these strategy points and hopefully deny you something somewhere else. Right, right. No, that makes sense. Um, okay, so let's hit the last uh, major resource we're going to talk about, uh, pass tokens. Now, um, pass tokens didn't exist in second. They were uh, introduced in third as... Uh, they, you know, they were meant to answer the, the problem that second had, which was uh, at the end, summoners dominated the game because what they did is they summoned kind of these throwaway models and they forced you to activate your good models uh, while they activated throwaway models. And then once you were completely spent, they would activate their real models and just stomp you and win the game. So pass tokens allow you to uh, pass, to uh, refuse to activate a model and instead discard a pass token and then your enemy, your opponent has to activate a model. Uh, alternatively, Pass tokens that you don't spend become a bonus initiative for the next turn. So they they help you win the initiative flip, which you can then either you know decide to go first or to make your opponent go first. Uh, and so Colgan, you know, for the unlike the other resource types, pass tokens they kind of sound I guess uh, a little less flashy or, or you know maybe even dare I say a little less important. Uh, am I am I wrong? Uh, are pass tokens actually you know more useful than I than I appreciate? Um, For me, I think pass tokens are definitely very important to the game. Mm -hmm. So one of the big things that I think takes a long time to kind of understand for newer players is the idea of activation control. Mm -hmm. So where you're applying pressure or where you can force your opponent to respond to certain actions. So for me, um, the use of pass tokens will change throughout the course of the game. During the first turn of the game, if I have some pass tokens because, you know, my opponent is running kind of more like a horde crew, mm-hmm. I'll generally just burn those pass tokens to force them to try and move their models to try and get an idea of where in the map they're trying to control and possibly what schemes they're trying to go for or if it's a strategy like which objectors they're moving towards so I can respond appropriately with the models on my side. Right. So then I guess on the other turns, you look to use them more for initiative? Um, yeah, so generally in most games, I feel like turns two and three tend to be when you're actually skirmishing or fighting with the opponent a lot. And a lot of these times, getting the first activation of turn means you're actually able to kill one of their models and deny them actions for that turn. Or, you know, I guess for the rest of the game if you kill the model. Um, so being able to increase the chances of 
winning initiative is very important and also just being able to maybe force out a high card from your opponent so that they can win initiative and try and get squeeze out the last few actions from their dying model right right so uh, you know as someone who plays hamlet and uh you know potentially maybe giving a lot of these tokens uh are you too concerned with that and um you know when would you maybe look to uh uh you know, trigger mindless on on these rats so they sure they can't act when they when they come out, but they don't give a pass token. Um. So in terms of Hamlin, I've actually found I don't worry too much about the pass tokens, because I, I feel like it hits like a breaking point. You know, at, at some point, you know, like the difference between like five and eight pass tokens is kind of like <laughs> I'm gonna lose initiative anyway. Right. So. Right. <laughs> Um, as far as when to use mindless, I, I found that in most of the games I've been playing recently, I haven't been using the just a rat ability that much. Uh I, I prefer to, if I don't feel like I'm pressured to act in a certain part of the board, I'll just have that rat like run in and just screen or block movement Mm -hmm. for my opponent. So I, I, I guess it really depends as always, how the flow of the game's going and where you feel there's kind of pressure for you to act. Right. Because, you know, even if I can just activate someone else and eat one of their pass tokens, um, I guess unless I'm playing Yoko, I don't feel a huge need to try and chip into their pass token pile. And I'd rather just maneuver those rats to bleed as many resources as I can from the opponent. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, so kind of what I'm getting from, from the discussion is that... Uh... Malifaux is kind of a zero sum game uh, when it comes to these to these resources, and you're trying to maximize uh, the value you're getting from your own resources and uh, minimize or even entirely deny the value that your opponent is going to get from their resources. Yeah, I, I feel like in Malifaux too, there is also a lot of I guess interconnectedness between all the resources. Mm-hmm. So you know, I might be okay with giving my opponent more pass tokens if it means I can deny actions or force them to kill rats and improve the quality of my card hand. Mm-hmm. Or you know, opponents or you know, your models with high stats is really great for dueling. But if you don't have the cards in your hand to ensure those actions go off, it doesn't really help you that much. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, well, so Colgan, I think this was a, a really good discussion of, um, you know, kind of some of the major resources as, as we see them in, in the game. Uh, I hope, uh, you know, our listeners enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, you know, please consider giving us a like, a comment, a share, or subscribe. We, you know, we love all feedback. If you want to send us uh, hate mail or email, that's fine. You know, if you want to uh, let us know some other things you think we could be talking about, if you think we're wrong or idiots, or if you think we're doing a great job, you know, we would just, uh, we play down here in Los Angeles. We would like to, you know, be a part of the wider Malifaux community. And that's part of why we're doing this podcast. And so that's also why we hope you'll uh, give us some feedback in terms of how you think we are doing and what you think of, uh, you know, what we're saying. And if you'd like to support the channel through PayPal or Patreon, there'll be links for those in the show notes as well. Uh, and until then, um, thank you for listening from myself and from Jim, who unfortunately, uh, you know, had to cut out early, uh, quite briefly. Uh, and so, yeah. And Colgan, you want to say a few words? Thanks for listening, guys. And yeah, if you have any comments, please let us know because we're always looking to improve. Great. Thanks. Uh, Have a good night, everyone. Bye, everyone.